you're listening to Reba Radio, the podcast. From 18th to the 26th of November 2021, our annual inclusion festival took the form of a dedicated radio station broadcast live from the bookshop at the Reba's HQ in London, with me, Marsha Ramroop, the Director of Inclusion at the RIBA, hosting the discussions. Reba Radio, the podcast, is the speech-only content from that radio station, themed and edited for your easy consumption. We suggest you make your way systematically through all episodes from the intro to the end to help you effectively on your inclusion journey. We hope you enjoy it and find it useful and applicable. If you are are just asking someone for your morning cup of tea... Uh, Make sure they don't do what my girls did this weekend, and that's hand over a cup with the letter T written on a tissue inside the mug. No, don't don't laugh. Don't laugh. It wasn't funny. I really needed that T. And that's not the worst they say to me either, apart from attacking my hairline, which they tend to do on a regular basis. uh, My 14-year-old, simply she simply doesn't like hugs these days. And I was approaching her for one and she grabbed a pen and she joked, if you come anywhere near me, I'll stab you in the nose with this pen. Uh, To which my younger daughter said, you have a lot of surface area to work on there. Uh, Oh, how we laughed. Uh, On the upside, they clearly get their sense of humour from their father because I still have mine. Haha, <laughs> lols. Uh, this hour, we have a series of interviews about key issues affecting women, not just uh, children with their devastating shade throwing, and not just in architecture, but clearly there are lots of factors uh, affecting women's experience in the profession. And I'm absolutely delighted that Zaymul Azad, uh, the senior campaigns officer at the Fawcett Society, can join us to discuss equal pay and the gender pay gap. Uh, morning, Zaymul. Thank you very much indeed for joining me. Can you just explain the purpose of the Fawcett Society for a bit of context? Morning. Thank you so much for having me. Um, Yeah, absolutely. So the Fawcett Society is the UK's leading gender equality charity, and we campaign to create a society where women in all their diversity can be free and equal to achieve their potential. Um, So we've been going a very long time. Millicent Fawcett was one of the suffragists who started... um, we started the organization and um, we've been campaigning ever since um, to achieve gender equality um, in both at work, in politics and in life in general. Thank you. And so um, we're, we're going to be talking about this idea of, of pay and equality around pay. It's really important, I think, for you to describe the difference between equal pay and the gender pay gap for clarity. Could you could you do that? Yeah, I think that's and that's such a good uh, question to start on as well because um, it can be quite confusing. So equal pay, uh, equal, you know, e- equal pay is about having the same pay for equal work. So equal pay for equal work is the basis that um, you know um, our Equal Pay Act exists on, um, and it's about if you're doing work of equivalent value or the same work. So if a man and a woman are doing the same work, they should be paid the same. Uh, it's a very obvious uh, kind of sentiment, but um, you know, pay discrimination still exists in spite of have being Ill- having been illegal for about 50 years. And mm-hmm. um, the gender pay gap, on the other hand, is about average pay. So it's about the difference between the average pay of women and the average pay of men as a group. And so pay discrimination is a contributory factor to the gender pay gap. 
but there are many other um, many other things that contribute to there being a pay gap between men and women. Now, in architecture, um, there is uh, the, the the profession is overwhelmingly led by men, and what we've discovered with some of the statistics is that although women are entering architectural education at the same rates as men, they're dropping off at various different stages uh, to the point where we probably have about sort of twenty to thirty percent women um, in the profession. And so, what kind of impact does that have when looking at something like? equal pay or the gender pay gap or both i think that's one of the you know one of the key causes of the gender pay gap sometimes is the fact that um, women have more interruptions in their career women uh, you know you were talking as we were starting about um that balance that juggling act that women have to do um, and the reality is that still women tend to do most of that juggling, most of that care work, whether it's looking after children or looking after elderly parents or looking after, you know, society in general, people around us. Um, and that is one of the factors that then contributes to the gender pay gap, because when women leave the workforce and then try to enter it later, they end up on lower pay. Um, it also means that women aren't represented as well in senior positions. So when it comes to promotion or when it comes to, you know, being in those really high paid positions, um, women lose out uh, because of having dropped out or because of those interruptions um, or because of working part-time due to caring responsibilities. Uh, so it has a very direct impact on women's financial, financial um, equality. Uh, the other thing that also contributes to is the pension gap, because there is a significant pension gap between um, men and women. And that's because, you know, as women go through life um, and lose out at every stage by the time uh, they get to retirement, uh, it's all you know, it's all caught up um, and it adds up to a very significant pensions gap. So you mentioned there as well, uh, when, when women tend to come back after maternity leave, are they on lower pay? Um, so they can they can sometimes end up on lower pay. It's not, and again, this is where, you know, um, we have a lot of laws to protect women from maternity discrimination and from um pay discrimination but a lot of the times it ends up being about culture or about the assumptions that people make or you know when it comes to promotion and a woman comes back from maternity leave there are sometimes assumptions that she might not be looking for a promotion or that she might not um you know she might want to focus on the family sorry, sorry? continue sorry Vaymo. um and just uh, you know some of those factors can then lead to um um, that being taken into account when promotion decisions are being made. Um, and that's why it's so important that there are transparent, there's transparency in promotion. And it's very clear to the whole organization how promotion decisions are made, what the process is, what that uh, decision is based on. Uh, because while you should be on your, um, you know, on your pay before maternity, it does mean that you might not get those pay rises or might not get those bonuses or, or uh, those promotions that then lead to higher pay. You mentioned that word transparency. How much of a problem is the fact that there isn't transparency when determining if equal pay is an issue in an organisation? Oh, such, such a big issue because if you so we've got legislation to say that women should get paid the same as a man doing the same job. But if you don't know what your male colleagues are getting paid, how do you even know? that you've got an equal pay claim. So one of the things that we at Fawcett have been campaigning on is the right to know, the right for women to know what their colleagues are getting paid so that they can know if they are being paid fairly. Um, currently, 
women have to go to tribunal just to find out. Mm. And one of the things that allies can do, um, you know, male allies, but also in terms of, I think when you think about the ethnicity pay gap, is to share that information because that can make such a big difference in support uh, of a claim or just just to know um, whether you are getting this the same amount of money um, as your colleagues doing the same job. It's a, it's a big deal, though, isn't it, culturally, to just reveal yeah. how much you're yeah. getting paid? You know, yeah. you know, what would need to change for people to feel OK about their pay being published so we can have that kind of transparency, do you think? I think we need to get more comfortable talking about money and pay, um, isn't it? I think in, in this country, culturally, that's a really big, uh, it's almost a taboo, isn't it? You don't talk about your pay. You don't talk about what you're earning um, or, or what you're spending. And I think getting to a level of uh, comfort where you can say, actually, there's nothing wrong with that. And this is this is how we get to a situation where we are fairly paid and um and it's part of those, uh, I think that it needs to be part of those conversations that you can have at work, but actually, I think also outside of work, because, you know, that's how culture change, uh, changes, uh, the culture outside of work influences culture at work. So what do we need architectural practices, and not just architectural practices, of course, but, you know, other organisations to do so that we can create that transparency and start to address these issues? So uh, lots of lots of different things. I think, especially in terms of tackling, you know, tackling when you're talking about tackling the gender pay gap, it's about transparency at every level. Um, and so starting right from recruitment. So one of the things we've been campaigning for this Equal Pay Pay Day is um, we've been asking employees to stop asking for salary history, um, so that you're starting those negotiations on, on salary at an equal footing. So that's one of the things you can do. But that transparency is also about advertising. So um, firms can be advertising um, salary bans, you know, being very clear and transparent on what the job you're advertising is paid and what those salary bans are. So starting from that level to then being clear on, you know, what are the uh, salary bans in the organization, who's paid within which band. And you don't have to necessarily say um, that this is how each person is paid, but being clear on what those you know, levels within the organization are and what the associated pay with them is. And then like which, like I said before about um, promotion processes as well, you know, how is hiring happening? How is promotion happening? Uh, what are the factors that are considered when promotions um, are made? So that you both know, you know, what other people are being promoted on, but also, you know, what you need to do to be promoted. And that takes away some of those assumptions and prejudice that can make their way into those processes, even if they're not done consciously, they can sometimes play a part in it. And that trans transparency is so key in tackling that. And what sort of measures um, can we use to track whether we're being successful in, in implementing those actions? Um, I, th I think knowing your gender pay gap to start off with. So, you know, currently in this country, um, you know, very large organizations are required to report on the gender pay gap. You're an organization of more than 250 people, but there is nothing stopping smaller organizations to track the pay gap. So to look at what, um, you know, men and women in the organization are getting paid, but also looking at the ethnicity pay gap. Again, you know, that's not mandatory, uh, but there's nothing stopping organizations from looking at that and then creating action plans um, you know, based on the, those pay gaps uh, with clear measurable targets 
and having an action uh, action plan that you're then you know reviewing every year and reporting on that can make a really big difference and and i think the size of the organization doesn't necessarily have to matter in that even smaller organizations can do that and within that um, because each organization will be different and um it's only by exploring what your gender pay gap is and why that exists for your organization you can start to um, you know find solutions to that and finally, just looking at the reporting and the culture around reporting itself, you know, how robust is that? And uh, what would uh, the Fawcett Society like to see done differently there? Yeah, so um, so gender pay gap, uh, the gender pay gap reporting when it was uh, introduced, uh, I think in 2017, you know, it has definitely made a difference. And we've seen pay gap, uh, pay gaps drop for organizations who, who have been reporting, but it can be better. So we've recently released a report uh, with the Global Institute for Women's Leadership that looks at gender pay gap reporting for developed, developed economies. Uh, and we found that the UK actually lags far behind other developed economies. So what we have been calling for is um, to reduce the threshold for reporting from 250 employees to uh, 100 so that more organizations are reporting and we've got a better picture of what's happening. Um, we would also like to see a, a requirement for um, uh, action plans on gender pay gap. So right now, big organizations are required to report, but they're not required to say what they're going to do about those reports. You know, those responsible employees will have an action plan, but there's nothing to say that they have to. Uh, we would also like to see mandatory ethnicity report, ethnicity pay gap reporting, um, because it's really important we have that intersectional data. And uh, we know, for example, when we're talking about the gender pay gap, that for most groups of women of color, the gender pay gap tends to be higher. Um, so um, mandatory ethnicity gap pay gap reporting is also something that we are calling uh, calling for. Thank you, Zaymal Azad, the Senior Campaigns Officer at the Fawcett Society. Now, this hour, we have a series of interviews about key issues affecting women, not just in architecture, but clearly they're factors that women experience in the profession. And I'm really pleased, really pleased uh, that Dr. Annabelle Showemimo, uh, a, a sexual and reproductive health doctor and founder of Decolonising Contraception, can join us to discuss reproductive health. And there's no doubt that women and those with female reproductive organs, they have a whole host of realities that impact on working life, of which very little is taken into account. You know, uh, as part of the menopause work that I've been leading recently, I've made it quite clear that you know, if the patriarchy who designed our current working environments had to manage the direct impact of having women's bodies too, our working lives would have been designed very differently. And so this isn't really about accommodations or concessions, Annabelle, is it? It's, a, it's really a point about human rights. Absolutely. And thank you so much for having me this morning and including me in your programming. Um, yes, exactly. I think um, our whole working um, experiences have really been designed um, centering um, men um, and those with uh, male bodies um, in mind, really. Um, so we really need, and part of this is that we don't have research about how people navigate working spaces um, and how to make this better and that's definitely a gap but it starts really at, at school age um, to be honest um, and then it works our way it works its way through right into our working lives um, it's the little things so um, building uh, workplaces where there are 
too few toilets, toilets that are not accessible for everybody, uh, don't have bins in them for um, sanitary products um, or menstrual products rather. So yeah, there's, there's a lot, a lot that's missing. And I think we're only really starting to understand the tip of the iceberg. When you think about what's missing, what, what are the kind of things that, that people need to be thinking about in the workplace? Um, so first and foremost, it's about making a work environment that enables people to be um, as make their jobs as easy for them as possible um, and make people as comfortable as possible. So um, I mentioned toilets um, and that seems like a basic requirement, really, that people should be able to um, go to the toilet um, in 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 comfort. <laughs> and so when we don't have. Um, toilets that are nearby so there are a lot of conditions that people just don't really factor in so um, a lot of um, people as they get older have bladder dysfunction particularly after giving birth um, need to go to toilet more frequently um, may have uh, menstrual disorders which mean that they have very heavy blood flow like fibroids for example um, in one of my clinics um, uh, a woman that had fibroids was having very heavy menstrual bleeding and was working at a supermarket would um, was unable to get herself um, or she was a cashier and um, she couldn't take breaks um, the toilets were far away and on a few occasions she's flooded whilst um, whilst working the cashier and she found that very embarrassing um, you know a lot of her colleagues are not were not particularly understanding and it's these little things that I don't think are, are fully accounted for it's also colleagues not fully um, understanding how some of these conditions affect people's day-to-day -day lives so sometimes people would rather work from home or they have to have multiple hospital appointments leading up to surgeries and things like that and in a way where people would be more understanding if somebody for example broke their leg um, people often put these conditions down to things like you know oh she's the old kind of historical things like it's hysteria oh it's just a period oh it can't be 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 that bad so people find themselves lying to their employer um, when I write sick notes um, I often have to be quite vague in what I write people say can you just say oh I had a gynae problem whereas other people could specify and then their employee um, their employers could make uh, better more accommodations for them. So what do we need from employers then to allow this conversation to be had openly? So there is a lot and lot of work to be done around education and stigma. Um, obviously, I have the benefit of being medically trained um, and also um, being academic and looking at all of these things. But, you know, even before I entered into medical school, um, I was really, really ignorant about just gynecology and things that are associated with down below in the various ways it can affect people and their mental health. Um, I really had never spoken about topics such as miscarriage um, or, or stillbirth or abortion. None of those things were things that um, I had really spoken about before I got to medical school. So there's a lot of education to be done around um, people understanding what those conditions are and also even how something like pregnancy loss affects, you know, both partners in a couple. 
Often it's the person that's lost the pregnancy that somebody might be more sympathetic towards, but nobody really talks about talks about the partner. So it's really doing us all a disservice. So I think education and destigmatizing some of these areas are are really, really key. And we see it in really basic acts that we're not taught to question. For example, uh, a lot of people that have periods will will say that. From, young, from a very young age, they're almost taught to hide their, their menstrual mm. um, pads or their tampons when they're going to the toilet. Why is that? Yeah, I was just thinking that about how uh, you just keep your, your sanitary products um, in, in your lock or whatever and you kind of slip it up your sleeve as, you, as you're walking to the... I, that's a genetic... Like everyone in this... Every woman that I can see is nodding their head. Uh, why do we do that? Why do, why do we do that? It's social conditioning, isn't it? It's We've been really told that this is a really shameful thing. Um, it's really disgusting. Um, we're not supposed to, people, we get embarrassed even if people know that we're, that, that we're bleeding. Um, and it just carries right the way through when actually it is something that's incredibly normal. Um, by keeping all of this aspect of our lives um, in the deepy, murky shadows, when people have really real issues in that area and and um speaking very honestly i've had very painful periods my my whole life um it's it's almost like you can't you can't articulate that you know i remember sitting one of my gcse's you know and being in excruciating pain and that was never take that obviously that wasn't taken into account and i managed to do okay but lots of people won't and it's the same for our working lives. And I think we need to make more room for those conversations. It's long overdue. And it's not just menstruation, though. I mean, uh, the, the, you talked about baby loss, miscarriage, IVF. Um, and you, the, these these impact women in, in the workplace in a way that we don't really talk about. Yeah, there's a whole host of issues. And um, I know you've been doing lots of work around the menopause. I'm also a menopause specialist. And I think menopause is quite rightly now having a little bit more of a moment to shine. There's been more programs about it. And I think it's really, really important. Um, and something that uh, is often mentioned, obviously, one of the key features of menopause a lot of people get is hot flushes. Um, something else a lot of people don't realise is brain fog. Now, something as basic as the temperature in the office um, is is really key to people being able to to work productively and engage with their work and being comfortable. And often um, people mentioned in clinic, people just turning the temperature up and they're sweltering. They're really uncomfortable, but they don't feel like they can say anything. And why is that? Um, so there's a whole host of issues and they're all interrelated. Um, it's all got to do at the end of the day with an element of sexism in medicine. Um, and that's one of the reasons that we know we have less research in sexual reproductive health, to be honest. It's about the demographics that it affects. Often it is poorer women that tend to have the worst sexual reproductive health um, and we don't get as much money and funding to understand some of these areas including menopause compared to other areas of healthcare. So what do we want to happen in the workplace? What what would utopia look like for you? <laughs> I mean I feel like there are lots of things that have been reformed um, due to COVID and I think um, 
hopefully some of these changes can stay in place. I think flexible working is key. Um, when people are have chronic illness or have an acute event um, or have disability, being able to work from home or work or adapt their working environment um, to somewhere other than an office um, is really quite key. So I think employers are understanding that they need to be more flexible to retain staff. So I think that's one, one really, really important thing. I also think that we're starting to understand more about obviously getting employees' experiences to how we adapt the, the working environment appropriately. But something that has been long not kind of overlooked is, you know, how people navigate the workspace. So, you know, where your toilets are, as I mentioned, where your bins are, where your temperature controller, who have access to that. Um, because in some, some workspaces, for example, there's a main, you know, board that covers all the, the temperature controllers and not every employee can change that. So just these little things about giving people more autonomy over their workspace and to, there's some, been some kind of feedback mechanism to say, actually, having that there really doesn't work for, for me, but actually it doesn't really bother anybody else. Can we change it? Um, that's really beneficial. I also think there's something to be said about um, people being a bit more well-versed and having conversations with people you know, have very different life experiences to them. So, um, for example, you know, when really, for some people, they don't see questions like, when are you having children as really intrusive. But if somebody's um, struggling with infertility, um, then that can really, you know, mentally affect somebody. And actually, why are you asking that question? You know, um, there are lots of other questions if you want to strike up a conversation and rapport with somebody that you can ask. I also think there is an element of, you know, more and more we work in diverse uh, working environments, um, a background like mine, I'm of Nigerian descent, being married and having children is something that's really, really prioritised. And if people don't have that, then it can be incredibly stigmatising and people don't want to discuss those things necessarily in the workplace. So I think that we, we, we have to build a bit more understanding of the different experiences in this area. Um, and I think it's... Um, been overlooked for for too long to be honest. Dr Annabelle Sewemimu, a sexual and reproductive health doctor and founder of Decolonising Contraception and we'll be spending an hour specifically speaking about planning for the menopause at work as part of CQ strategy on Wednesday. Now, Claire Nash is an architect and founding director of Claire Nash Architecture, uh, what's been described as a radical all-female practice specialising in rural energy-efficient design. Ten years ago, Claire was struggling with a common problem, how to be an architect and still have a life, uh, which in itself is a problematic sentence, but we'll dig into that. And uh, she's also since had a child and has uh, caring responsibilities that have kicked in too. Uh, she's written a book to help others with these competing priorities called Design Your Life. And she joins me in the studio now, Claire. Tell me a bit about your story. Hello, thank you for having me. Um, yeah, so I set up 10 years ago. Um, I, was, I was made redundant, so I was kind of forced into it earlier than um, I perhaps would have wanted to, but um, that turned out to be a really good thing. Um, <clears throat> and I, So I was very busy um, once, once I got the thing going and I needed to take on staff, so I, so I thought, OK, I'll, um, I'll, 
our employer student where I was teaching at Oxford Brooks. Um, but how was I going to do that? Because I really dislike commuting and I wouldn't expect a student to have a car. So I thought, seeing as I'm there anyway once a week, why not just tag on an office meeting instead of having a full office where we have to work together all the time? Um, so that's how the office meeting was born. And um, we've been running um, a remote team for the past seven years. So we were well ahead of COVID. And it's quite funny because um, a lot of architects said to me, God, how do you do it? It's just mad running it like that. And then post-COVID, they've all gone, OK, I kind of get it now. <laughs> yeah, so you, so tell me that, that idea behind the practice. It's flexible, it's uh, online working. Uh, t- tell me a little bit more about those what before COVID were perceived to be absolutely difficult, different and radical things to do rather than difficult, apologies. Yeah, um, well, I've uh, I've always really enjoyed... um, Well, to be honest, I found working in office quite stifling. The fact that you have to sit there from nine to five, whether you finish your work or not, is really irritating. And, uh, you know, I personally find I'm quite productive in the mornings and then... um, three, four o'clock onwards, but there's a big gap in the middle when I'm actually, you know, I might as well just go for a walk, which is exactly what I do in my um, in my normal working day. And I thought, you know, I can't be the only person who feels like that. Um, and why do we all have to sit looking at each other all the time to work collaboratively anyway? And I, I was also fortunate when I was a student, I had a lovely experience. Um, uh, there was a team of us students who worked for Architecture San Frontieres and we did a project at the Eden Project and we had a very similar model. So we met up uh, once a week, had a big meeting, shared lots of ideas and we all went away with the patch of work to get on with by ourselves. And it worked so well and I thought, this is really good, why doesn't this happen more often? So, um, so I got the opportunity to try it out for myself when I took on employees, which was an experiment in itself, but it worked really well. So, um, and now there's seven of us. Would you still describe what you do as radical? I mean, who described it as radical in the first place? Was that yourself? No, <laughs> it definitely wasn't me. And we're not all female anymore either. Um, but it, it just started off that way. Um, I think because my job adverts were quite inclusive in the way they, they um, were laid out. Um, you know, I said there's lots of support, there's lots of flexibility. Um, so it attracted lo- lots of women. Um, uh, so I ended up taking on more women. I did interview some men. <laughs> um, but, um, yeah, and our, fir- our first chat was Harry, and now we have James and we have Stephen as well. So um, so this idea that uh, bef- beforehand you, that you had to balance being an architect and still having a life, I mean, that's something culturally within the profession that's hugely problematic, that there's a sense that you can't have both that's a compromise in some way what 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 needs to be pulled apart there yeah well when I um I studied interior architecture and then um got the ARB exam to um carry on with architecture later and I remember um quite soon I think my first week studying interior architecture and I was quite interested in um triathlon I was doing lots of swimming and stuff and I remember the um the course director saying oh a lot of people find they can't fit in sport they try but they can't it's just you know it's all consuming blah blah and um, <clears throat> I thought mm, I'm pretty sure I can still fit in and I'll just become more efficient somehow and I did I, I kept it up all the way through um, so that was another kind of lesson that you don't have to accept that architecture is all consuming and I personally found the break that I took from cycling or whatever I came back with really good ideas and I put that into my work and I was very good about having good working hours I didn't work really late into the night 
Um, <clears throat> so, yeah, so that was really good learning and good practice for the future. What is the difference, do you think, between the way that you're able to be efficient with your time and then this culture which suggests, no, you have to spend almost every waking hour and maybe some that you're asleep working on your projects and your designs? I think it comes from a perfectionist thing and, and also the artist thing. You know, you're never, you're never finished with art and there's no right and wrong answer like with maths or um, another science. Um, so it can be tricky to say, yep, yeah, I'm done now. <clears throat> um, I suppose I've, I, I have a tendency not to just accept things as they are. If I want to do something else, I'll find a way of doing it. So it, it is partly a mindset thing. Um, um, but yeah, I, I, don't, I still don't really get it. And um, that it, having said that, um, Oxford Brooks particularly, if, um, have, um, well, what, when I was teaching there, they stopped the 24 hour pass because that was supposed to send a message out to people. You don't need to be here 24 hours, um, which I think, I think that helps, that kind of message. Now, you, your book um, suggests that, uh, you know, there, there is a way that you can design your life so that you can, you know, work well, have that balance. Explain a little bit more, especially in architecture, because I think there are probably quite a few people crying out for this kind of understanding. What, what do I need to do differently? so that I can get this balance right. Yeah, it, it is tricky and I'm, <clears throat> I'm not at all saying I've, I've got it all. I really hate that sentence that, you know, you can have it all because you absolutely can't. It's all about compromise and priorities. And um, for, for me, there was no point having an architecture practice if it didn't give me a life outside of it. <clears throat> um, so that was, that was my aim and that was my priority. It wasn't winning design awards or um, doing international work or, or that kind of thing, which other people are motivated by. So um, that, that being said, I've really enjoyed the projects that I've worked on uh, and I feel like I've progressed all the eco-design specialism that we do. Um, and I've really enjoyed writing books. Um, so I, I think it is mostly about priority prioritization um and that goes down to your weekly schedule if you start um on a monday morning and you're like okay this these are the things i absolutely have to do what are my other priorities it's not you're not getting led astray by emails and other thing other distractions that come through and then you can become really efficient and meet your goals i'm not saying i do this every single week but most of the time it, that's the ideal it, yeah <clears throat> um but you you run your own practice and there are women uh, who are in other practices and who, who don't have this kind of flexibility. Um, what would you say to those practices to try to get the most out of, well, not just the women, the people, really, in their practices? Um, I, I think it's a great shame that um, a lot of women, particularly, um, and men too, are leaving um, conventional practice just because they can't get flexible working. They're, they're maybe not naturally business-minded. They didn't really want to set up as freelance or so, and they just want a flexible job. I see that quite a lot in a lot of the sole traders that I know. Um, I think that's a shame that they have to take on that extra stress of running a business um, when, they, when they just wanted flexible working. And these really great minds are leaving um, practice and you know, it doesn't take that much to organise flexible working. Um, a lot of people think it's a massive admin stress, but I don't find it to be a problem at all. It, it doesn't cause me any extra bother um, as an employer. Um, and I certainly don't feel like I have to be watching my staff and checking that they're working all the time. I mean, it's just, 
it's it's results driven. So if the work's not getting done, then you know and um, you can see. Um, uh, you don't need to be looking over their shoulder all the time. Um, and and anyway, we're all architects. We're all really passionate about doing the work that we're doing. It's you know, it's quite easy to be self-motivated if you love what you do. I think that's one of the issues is that people are, are maybe coming out and, and, and trying to set up on their own. Um, and it's leading to a very fragmented um, sector, really, and that ability to move forward together as a sector to make change in society might be compromised as a result of that. Yeah, I th to, to be honest, I think if you're not offering flexible working in the, in the coming years, then you're just going to be left behind. Younger students all want that. You know, whenever I give lectures, they're all really well attended and people are going, yeah, this is what I want. I didn't know it existed. Great that it does. They want that kind of, some of them want that kind of nomad life. I mean, lots of, um, me and my staff have all worked abroad at various points in, um, uh, which is wonderful. <laughs> um, it's really enriching um, and, you know, it's enabled me to write books. It's enabled other people to do research and charity projects and all sorts of other things outside of their daily work and you know why how is architecture losing from that outside influence it it's not it's gaining massively so i think you know you're missing out if you're not if you're not part of the flexible working well claire nash architect and founding director of claire nash architecture has written design your life which is available here at the reba bookshop uh, at a discount as well if you go to uh, rebabookshop.com forward slash reba dash radio you can pick it up you're listening to reba radio real inclusive brilliant action